This is Meredith for Real, the Curious Introvert, and I'm Meredith. Here, we explore taboo questions through nuanced conversations. Sometimes they're the questions people think but don't ask out loud, and sometimes they're questions that fly under the radar, veiled by cultural hypnosis. My mission, and yours if you choose to accept it, is to inspire curiosity within yourself and the world around you. Each episode is different, so bring your ADD and your earbuds and have a look around. Before we dive into it, a quick check, if you don't mind, look to see if you're following me on whatever app you're listening on. If you're not, give that button a little tap. Okay, so today's episode explores two things that presumably should not go together, near-death experiences and science. My guest makes the case that the world we can see is not our only experience and shows the scientific evidence that the mind and consciousness are separate and gives several stories that are just hard to explain away. We also dive into astral projection and terminal lucidity because, you know, why not? In all seriousness, this episode is remastered from 2021, and along with his book, it totally changed my life. I'm no longer fearful of death, so I hope that you get a lot out of it as well. And if you do end up liking this episode, you'll like the one that I did with Diana Walsh Pasulka about the intersection of religion, technology, and UFOs. That's episode 148. All right, friends, keep it curious. The big question, what happens when we die? Some people claim to know, not because they learned it in Sunday school, but because they died and they came back. Near-death experiences have been documented as far back as ancient Greece, but it wasn't really called that until the 1970s by, at that time, atheist Dr. Raymond Moody. My next guest was Dr. Moody's unlikely protege. He was raised in a scientific household with no particular religion. His interest in near-death experience was a scientific one that started when an unconscious patient described in detail a conversation that he had with another woman in a different room. Despite the scrutiny of his peers, he spent the next 50 years collecting, cataloging, studying thousands of modern accounts of near-death experiences. Today, he's going to share how science supports the idea that the world we can see is not our only experience. Open-minded skeptic, cozy with contradiction, been using a Bunsen burner since elementary school, Dr. Bruce Grayson. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Meredith. I'm very happy to be with you today. So the mind and the brain mm-hmm. are not the same. Can can you help us understand that? I can try. I can try as well as I can understand it. You know, I was taught in college and in medical school that the mind is what the brain does, that the brain creates all our thoughts and all our feelings, our desires. And, you know, that was just accepted. And that's what I believed until I started my psychiatric training. And then, as you mentioned, I was a few weeks into my training and I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room and she was totally unconscious. I could not arouse her. So I went to another room where her roommate was waiting and I talked to the roommate about what was going on in the patient's life. Then I went back to see the patient who was still unconscious and I arranged for her to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And I went back to see her the next morning. When I did that, I started to introduce myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that didn't make any sense to me. So I said something like, I thought you were unconscious when I saw you last night. She said, not in my room. 
I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. At this point in my life, I had been an atheist raised in a scientific household where the material world was all there was. What you see is what you get. And what she said made no sense to me at all. As far as I could tell, the only way she could have done that is if she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I know, I was my body. How can you leave it? It makes no sense. So she saw my confusion and started to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, what I asked her, what she responded to. And finally, she said, and you were wearing a striped tie with a red stain on it. No, I had stained my tie just shortly before I went down to see her in the emergency room. And I covered it up with a lab coat so no one would see it. But when I was talking to her roommate, it was a very hot Virginia evening. I unbuttoned my lab coat for like 10 minutes so I wouldn't sweat so much. And that was the only time that stain was available. And somehow she knew about that. It just blew my mind. I couldn't imagine how she got that information. But I was there to help her and not help myself. So I had to push my feelings out of the, out of the way and just dealt with her. And as I tried to think about this the next few days, the only way I could make sense of it is if someone was playing a trick on me. Maybe the nurses has concluded with her. It just made no sense. And it wasn't until about five years later that Raymond Moody wrote his book, Life After Life, in which he gave us the term near-death experience and described what they were like. And I realized for the first time that this story the patient told me was not just one isolated event, but was part of a, a much larger phenomenon. It still didn't make any sense to me, but I was raised as a skeptic and as a scientist, which means you don't run away from things you don't understand, you move towards them. So I started collecting cases. And now 50 years later, I'm still trying to understand them. I love what you said about when you don't understand something, you don't mm -hmm. run away from that. I just I just love that to my core. I think that's so incredible. And I, I love the advancement potential for science that that mindset gives us. So what a gift that that woman probably not on purpose, <laughs> was yeah. did that. You know, she picked the yeah. right guy. So do we have any scientific evidence that our consciousness exists outside our physical bodies? Yeah, we do. We do. In, in many, many near-death experiences, people say they left their bodies and they saw things from an out-of-body perspective that they couldn't possibly have seen. Uh, let me give you an example of this. One fellow I knew was a 55-year-old truck driver who was, he had crushing chest pain, rushed to the hospital, and they did an evaluation and found he had four vessels on his heart that were clogged. So he was rushed to the operating room for quadruple bypass surgery. In the middle of the operation, he told me, he saw his surgeon, he looked down from above, saw his body on the operating table, and saw his surgeon flapping his arms like he was trying to fly. Now, at this point, I've been a doctor for 30 years. I'd never heard anything so ridiculous in my life. So I thought he was hallucinating, but he insisted it was real. So a few days after his operation, with his permission, in fact, with his insistence, I went to talk to his surgeon. I asked him about it. And the surgeon kind of sheepishly said, well, yeah, I did do that. I was letting my assistants start the operation while I put on my sterile gloves and gown and went into the operating room and watched them start the operation. I didn't want to risk touching anything that wasn't sterile. So I put my hands where I knew they wouldn't touch anything, flat against my chest. And then I pointed things out to them with my elbows so I wouldn't touch anything with my fingers. 
And he demonstrated just like the patient did. Now, that's not something the patient could have guessed, not something to see doctors on TV doing. So I don't know how he could have known that. And I've heard that from time after time after time from different experiencers, that they saw things accurately from an out-of-body perception. So they have lots of evidence from near-death experiences that our consciousness is not necessarily tied to the body. Uh, this is not a new idea. Hippocrates wrote about this 2,000 years ago. And in fact, we have evidence from other things besides near-death experiences that the mind and the brain are not the same. Now, in everyday life, it seems like they are. When you get drunk, you don't think very clearly. When you get hit on the head or have a stroke, that affects your thinking. But in extreme circumstances like near-death experiences, the mind and the brain seem to separate. Another example is something called terminal lucidity, in which people who have end-stage dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, and have not been able to communicate coherently or recognize family for months or sometimes years, suddenly become totally lucid again and can recognize people, carry on coherent conversations, and then shortly after that, they die, often within hours. And we have no medical explanation for that. You don't regenerate a brain with Alzheimer's disease, and yet it happens. And the explanation seems to me to be that when the brain deteriorates enough, it loosens its hold on the mind, and then you can have this separation take place. I found that so fascinating, both in your book and just other you know resources researching for this episode, because especially when it came to the John Hopkins studies done about psych for psychedelic research, because yeah. you would think that that would well light up the brain, you know, right, and right. and they found you would obviously be better at explaining this than I am, but I think you know what I'm referring to, where yes, it, yes. It, it the quieting of the brain, for lack of a better way to explain that, it like heightens this other lesser study, harder to measure aspect of it. Right, right. We always assume that psychedelic drugs work by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. But work with done at Johns Hopkins with psilocybin and at Imperial College in London have consistently shown that the more elaborate mystical experiences with psychedelic drugs are associated with a decrease in brain activity and a decrease in the connection between different parts of the brain. Almost as if, again, the brain is loosening its hold on the mind so that it can then can experience all these things. Aren't humans incredible? Doesn't it just researching all this just make you feel like we're such a mystery. We think we, we know are. so we much, are. but we really don't. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of exciting. I loved what you quoted in the book. It was um, science historian Thomas Kuhn, and he said, scientific advances come about when a new fact is discovered that can't be explained. Exactly. And, and when you shared the story about the woman and your spaghetti stain on your tie and the man observing himself in surgery, I, I I was thinking about those again, running them through my brain and realizing that these were not near-death experiences in a sense because they weren't dead. But when I went down the rabbit hole of research, <laughs> I learned that this was called astral projection. And then that led me to the CIA's report. What was it called? The they just released a report yeah. just saying that they were studying the phenomenon for altered state of conscious for the purpose of psychic spying during the Cold War. And I forget what the name of the report is, but 
have you had to have any insight into this particular feature of the experiences that you've collected? Yeah, the military, they, they call this project the Stargate Project. And they actually trained some people on how to leave their bodies and view things from, from at a different location, distant location. So they could sort of spy on, uh, at this time, it was, it was the Russians. Um, and they had some success in that, but they just ultimately decided, if you can believe what their report says, that it wasn't <laughs> accurate enough to keep funding. Um, so they stopped doing the research into that, um, if you believe the reports. You've said but that twice, no, so you don't believe the report. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's a fascinating area, and there's, um, I think, a a school that studies this as well. There are many. There are many schools that study this. My university, University of Virginia, is the only one that has uh, an academic group in, in a medical school that's devoted to studying this. But there are independent schools all over the world that, that study astral projection or other phenomena like that. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty incredible, but hard to measure. And and so I am curious about your thoughts of measurement tools. How do you measure scientifically these cases and what tools of measurement do you feel like the future may have? Maybe you've heard some someone's working on that would be really helpful for getting more data around and measuring around these sorts of things? Well, you know, we started studying this phenomenon, near-death experiences, by just collecting stories. And that's really how all science starts. You collect anecdotes, and then you find patterns when you get enough of them. So we looked at patterns that were consistent across cultures, people in different religions, different cultures, different centuries. And we found a lot of consistent features that, that were the same among near-death experiences, no matter where you were, no matter what you believed. Things like leaving the body, having a tremendous sense of overwhelming peace and well-being, going through a tunnel to some other non-physical realm, encountering other entities that you may interpret as being gods or deceased loved ones. And these are consistent across cultures. So we developed a scale to measure this, and we have applied that to thousands and thousands of people. It's been translated into 20 different languages now, and used around the world. And that's a basic tool for studying the near-death experience. Now, we can then correlate the, the scores on this scale with physiological things going on in the body and in the brain at the time of the experience, or with the after effects, how this experience changes people's lives. And for me as a psychiatrist, that's one of the most important parts of this feature of, the, of this experience. People are never the same after a near-death experience. And you're being humble. You said we created a scale. I know you created the scale. Yes. <laughs> and I know people call it the Grayson scale, but you don't care for that. You call it the NDE right. scale, correct? Right. Yes. Right. Right. But I love how the NDE scale, It from what you just described, it sounds a lot like scales for measuring like depression and... Uh, yes. Yes. You know, things that you can't literally take a tape measure to, but... You measure the features. Is that kind of how you got inspired to set up those measurements? Right, right. right. I, you know, as a psychiatrist, I'm familiar with these scales from, for measuring emotional states like depression and anxiety. And I've kind of modeled it after that. We can look at what's going on in the brain at the time of the experience and maybe develop eventually some other markers of the experience. You know, the fact that the brain doesn't cause these experiences 
doesn't mean that the brain doesn't permit it in some way. You need to, to alter the brain in order to allow these experiences to have to take place. Have any controlled experiments been done maybe with the help of psychedelic drugs? Not with psychedelic drugs per se. That, that may be in the future. But people have tried to place hidden targets in, in rooms where people are likely to have near-death experiences, like the intensive care units of hospitals. And the idea is that when people then have an, an out-of-body experience during a near-death experience, they may see this hidden target and be able to report it. And so far, they have not produced any results. Hmm. When you investigate individual experiences and separate the scientific process from investigating you know, the actual incident, mm -hmm. how, how have you personally been able to resist the temptation to attach meaning to all these stories? That must have been difficult. Well, you know, in my mind, I think about the meanings, but that's not part of science. Science doesn't deal with meanings. It deals with, with facts, with the phenomena and their correlates and their, their effects. So, for example, when someone talks about leaving the body and seeing things that they shouldn't have been able to see, we try to corroborate that by talking to other people who may have been in the areas who can corroborate that or, or disprove it. And that applies not only to things they see, but things they report about, say, an afterlife as well. I mean, most people who have a near-death experience will report encountering deceased loved ones. And that is easily dismissed by debunkers by saying, that's wishful thinking. That's it's expectation. And yet there are many cases in which people see a deceased loved one who they did not know had died which kind of takes expectation off the table and wishful thinking off the table. I, I can give you an example of that. One fellow I knew was a 25-year-old technical writer who was admitted to the hospital with severe pneumonia, and he had repeated respiratory arrest where he couldn't breathe. And he had one primary nurse who worked with him every day who was about his age. And one day she told him she was going to be taking several days off for the weekend, and there'd be other nurses substituting for her. So he said goodbye to her. She took off for the weekend. And while she was gone, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he found himself in a near-death experience, in a beautiful pastoral scene. And there, to his surprise, this nurse of his, Anita, came walking towards him. He did double take and said, you know, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said, basically, oh, this is where I am now, but you can't stay here. You need to go back to your body. And I want you to find my parents and tell them, I'm sorry that I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away. Well, he then woke up in his hospital bed with full memory of this. And when he tried to tell the first nurse to work into his room about it, she got very upset and rushed out. It turned out that his nurse, Anita, had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents surprised her with the gift of a red MGB. She got very excited, jumped in the car, took off for a drive, smashed into a telephone pole and died instantly, shortly before Jack had his near-death experience. And there's certainly no way he could have expected her to be dead. And no way he could have known how she died. And yet he did. And that, for me, is, is corroboration. He shouldn't have known those things, and yet he did. And third parties have corroborated it. 
Hey, Curiositors, just a quick pause to show gratitude to our sponsors and give you some special deals. If you're new here, you may be surprised to know that the beautiful backdrop of my show is not a virtual screen. It's a real place that you can really rent inside of the Pensacola Museum of History. The exhibit space is called Trader John's. It's an old bar in Pensacola whose owner was just as eclectic as this town. And it's perfect for birthdays, work events, award ceremonies, retirement parties, family reunions. So don't pick another boring venue space for your next event. Give the Pensacola Historic Trust your business and make your event super memorable. Learn more at historicpensacola.org. The weather is cooling down here in the southern U.S., and that means it's fire ant season. For those of you not from the south, fire ants are about as pleasant as they sound, and their bites puss up into an itchy red mess that takes forever to heal. I recommend Insect for pest management because I've been using their mosquito service since 2019, and I love that their work is guaranteed. If you're in the Florida Panhandle or the Gulf Coast of Alabama, give Insect a call. It's E-N-S-E-C dot net. Now back to the show. Remember to stay till the end where I give you a sneak peek of next week's episode. It's almost like it, your process includes like a crime scene investigation, you know? <laughs> Do you have any witnesses that you are there? It's it's just fascinating. You exactly. also said in in regards to the process of leaning into this un, into areas that are unknown that we'll look back 200 years from now and think oh how naive we were, right? Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's so important to always consider that in any given subject that we could be totally wrong? Well, that keeps us humble, I think. You know, every generation of scientists has looked back on previous generations and said how ridiculous they were to believe this or that, whether it's, you know, the world was flat or whatever. So it's really the utmost arrogance to say we have the answers now and what we believe now is really the truth. Because if history is any guide to the future, and of course it is, then 100 years now, people look back on us and say, how could they possibly believe those silly things? So, you know, we make the best guesses we can. You know, one scientist said, science is not about being right. It's about better ways of being wrong. Mm, that's great. Oh, I theories. love that quote. That's fantastic. You, you, you come up with theories that are better than the last one. <laughs> they're, not, they're not the way reality is. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. If you weren't studying near-death experiences, what other area would you be studying? Well, I'd probably be studying mental illness. You know, that's, that's what my bread and butter is for the last 50 years. I've made my living by treating psychiatric patients. And if I hadn't come across near-death experiences, I would have been studying uh, mental illness, which is what I started out doing. Uh, and looking at the, the brain uh, correlates of mental illness. Have you come to any personal conclusions about what happens after death that you are okay to share? You know, when you ask a near-death experiencer to tell you about their experience, they almost always start by saying, well, there just aren't words for it. I, I, can't, I can't express it to you. So we researchers then say, great, tell me about it. <laughs> so we know we're forcing them to, to destroy it. And they rely on metaphors to tell us about it. So, for example, people all over the world will talk about seeing this warm, loving being of light. And if you happen to be a Christian, you may say, 
that was God. If you're a Hindu, you won't use that word. So people put cultural or religious labels on what they experience. But even people I talk to here will say, I'm going to use the word God so you know what I'm talking about. But this wasn't the God I was taught about in church. It's much bigger than that. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly convinced now that death is not the end of us, which is the exact opposite of what I thought when I started this work. But I've seen enough evidence I can't deny that I think that there is something after death. And it's not something to be afraid of. The nearly universal testimony of near-death experiencers is that what happens after death is not something that's fearful. And yet, because they tell me they can't describe it to me, I don't take literally anything they say about it. So I don't know what it's going to be like. And I'm prepared to be very surprised. That's beautiful. I, I feel like uh, all the people who have had these near-death experiences have been transformed by them um, in various ways, which you've yeah. obviously had such a amazing front row seat to <laughs> kind of witness. How can those of us who have no plans on nearly dying anytime soon have these sorts of sustainably transformative changes yeah. in our yeah. lives? Well, well the, the changes are, as you said, very, very uh, transformative. Uh, people um, never go back to the way they were before in near-death experiences. I've talked to people several decades after the NDE, the near-death experience, and they say, it's, it, I've never gone back to the way I was before. They become much more spiritual, with, and by that I mean more connected to other people, to the universe, to the divine, uh, to, the, to nature, and less concerned with things of this world, you know, physical, material goods, power, prestige, fame. So the things that we think define us, your gender, your age, your political affiliation, your, your religion, are totally meaningless to these people after an near-death experience. And they become much more spiritual. And because of that, they recognize kind of the divine in themselves and in everyone else. And they treat people differently. Uh, and they basically treat people the way they would want to be treated. This is the golden rule which is a part of every religion we have. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But they tell me that for them, it's no longer a guideline you're supposed to follow. It's a law of the universe, the way gravity is for us. You can't avoid it. And this is the way it is for them, that you can't hurt someone else without hurting yourself. And this dramatically changes their lives. I've known people who were in violent professions, career police officers, military officers, uh, who had a near-death experience and could not continue their career. They could not shoot someone, even if they, quote, deserved it. Mm -hmm. So they had to change careers and, and do something else. And most of them end up going into a helping profession, teaching, social work, clergy, something like this, healthcare. Now, their, their lives are never the same. And sometimes that causes problems for them. They have to start new careers. Sometimes marriages break up. It's interesting that we have all these documentations of near-death experiences from ancient Greece. I mean, far, far, far long ago. And it's evidenced, obviously, in the documentation of these events, but also in, as you said, every religion has yeah. this conclusion that we should treat each other with love and respect. The golden mm -hmm. rule is often, you know, we refer to it in the West. I love that you said recognizing the divine in each other. 
I have a friend in India that says that a lot. I yeah. just, it's just beautiful. But God, what happened? Like, why do we keep having to learn this? You know, and I, and that makes me wonder, has this never been put in one place at one time? And if, if not, how extra special is it that you took the time to write your book so that these stories can live all together in one place and remind us in lots of different uh, religions and lots, lots of different, you know, geography, gender, mm. everything that this is like a common theme and that we should continue to learn from it. So yeah. I think that's really special that you did that. I don't know if this is the first time that these have ever been collected in one place, but if it is, kudos to you. <laughs> no, that, it has been done before. But like I said, most religions uh, teach this and many spiritual traditions have developed techniques to get this type of, quote, enlightenment. Various meditative techniques, for example. Some religions have tried psychedelic drugs to get there. Mm -hmm. um, but we, what we found is that just learning about near-death experiences can also help you absorb some of these same changes. There's an organization called the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IANDS, and their website is IANDS.org, and they provide a wealth of educational information about near-death experiences and have a an online national conference, which actually takes place over Labor Day weekend. So if you go to the website, you can find out about that. Oh. Uh, there's also a lot of evidence that just reading about near-death experiences can give you some of the same, same, same transformations. And that's partly why I wrote my book after. That is honestly the perfect segue to <laughs> <laughs> promote your book. I really did. I enjoyed this so, so much. It is such a gift. Thank you so much for all of this hard work. 50 years of research and collecting stories and cataloging and making sure they're legit. These are, you know, vetted. Can you share with people where to purchase your book and um, any other resources you want the listeners to know about before we wrap up? You can purchase the book anywhere books are sold, certainly Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. They all have it. Um, you can also find out more on my website, which is brucegrayson.com. Uh, that's Grayson with G-R-E-Y-S-O-N. Uh, there's a lot of information there about the book and about near-death experiences in general. There. Perfect. Thank you again a ton. That was amazing. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, you'll also like the one I did with Diana Walsh Pasulka about the intersection of religion, technology, and UFOs. That's episode 148. Stay tuned next week when I talk with a microdosing mentor exploring the question, could psychedelics heal trauma for good?